Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My podcast guy has told me my mic isn't very loud, so if you've been listening to a few other episodes and you can't hear me, I hope you can hear me better on this podcast. As I'm looking at the little lines on my screen, they seem to be going up and down more than they were, so I hope this podcast works out better, and thanks for hanging in there with us with some other podcasts, because we've had tremendous guests that I want you to hear them. Um, but anyway, my guest on today's podcast is my friend Dashiell Miner. Welcome to the podcast, Dashiell. Thanks, Richard. I'm super excited to be here. Um, just by way of background, you know, I introduce my guests and then I give them a chance to kind of correct the bio I share. But Dashiell is um, 22. He just finished his sophomore year at BYU in microbiology. His um, plan is to become a medical doctor and oncologist. He's currently living in Cincinnati. He's here in Salt Lake for a week. Um, doing What kind of work are you doing in Cincinnati this summer? It's, um, it's a medical internship. So I'm researching sepsis with a doctor at the Children's Hospital out there. That's great. And um, Dashiell's parents are close friends of mine. I've known um, Dashiell's father, Tom. We went to high school together. We've stayed close. Um, his wonderful wife, Julia, is a wonderful friend. And they're just wonderful Latter-day Saints, raising three amazing children in the California area. What part? I'm going to say Danville. Yeah, it's Danville. That's right. Where is that? So Danville is like, it's probably like 30 minutes east of Oakland. Okay. Yeah. That's a beautiful area. It's a really good area. And um, I became aware of Dashiell, and we'll talk about this in segment four, the last segment, just Dashiell's work to become a better LGBTQ ally and advocate. Um, his father sent me an email that Dashiell had shared with him from his mission in Oklahoma City, where this subject came up, that actually made it into my book. So we'll talk about that later. Um, and then I became aware of a talk that Dashiell gave in his ward about an experience he had at the prison, San Clemente. San Quentin. San, San Quentin. Quentin. Yeah. Death Row. Not death row. It was just maximum security. Maximum security, yeah. Um, so I've asked Dashiell to read this talk. It's a deeply moving talk that teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaches to see a group of people in perhaps a different way, which I think makes their heavenly parents happy. And so um, this will just be a podcast that um, Dashiell share his story about um, growing up with hearing loss. First, I'll just introduce the four segments, listeners. Um, Dashiell's first segment would be growing up with hearing loss and some brain surgery and the things that that taught him and brought him into his life. Then we'll have him give his pr prison talk. He'll talk about growing up in his LDS household and the principles and values and perspective that he learned from his wonderful parents. And then we'll conclude with Dashiell's sort of ongoing journey to better understand LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And many of you are probably like me, kind of on this road to try to better lift the burdens and better understand. And we're, none of us are quite at the finish line, but I think being honest about where we are and sharing our efforts to understand helps all of us. So that will be the fourth segment. Is that okay for an introduction? Yeah, no, and that's great, Richard. And I, I really appreciate what you do on this podcast. It's, it's absolutely inspiring and you're, you're making a change in so many different lives. And I, I can't help but think that 
we all want to know what your story is one day. I, yeah, I think you'd be so amazing if someone sat down and asked you a bunch of questions and did an interview with you. So one of these days. One of these days. That's very insightful. Thank you, Dashiell. So um, before we went live, you told me, um, obviously, we talked about you being in Cincinnati, but you want to become an oncologist, um, which for our listeners, as you may understand, is a cancer doctor. Talk about why. Great. Thank you. Um, I was actually uh, shadowing an oncologist today, so that was a great experience to get to see him interact with patients. Um, there's there's a ton of different things that go into that. Um, first off, I don't have or really know anyone close to me who are who is affected profoundly by cancer. I know there are people out there who do have cancer, and I... I just don't, I, I don't have an experience, like an in-person experience there, but I, um, this, a couple semesters ago, I took a, an honors class at BYU and it was on disease and literature and it was super cool. It was talking about how we view literature through the lens of disease and then how we view disease through the lens of literature. And so we'll talk about disease in books and in the past and how it's depicted, but then we'll talk about how literature and art acts like a disease and it's contagious in many different ways. And so it was, it was really, really cool. But one of the units that we talked about was the unit on tuberculosis and kind of the preface and premise behind that, uh, that segment was that uh, tuberculosis was the most romantic disease, as in the fact that it best represented the romanticist or romantic movement. Um, and the reason behind that was that uh, people who get tuberculosis would learn about it and know that they would die, uh, or at least most of them would die. And they would hear about it, you know, six months to a year before they passed away. And they knew they would die. And uh, as they died and as they closed it, as they, as they, as they approached the, the great sublime, um, they lived even harder. Um, which is incredible, which is absolutely incredible. And there's this intensely spiritual and mortal theme behind coming closer to death. Um, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, people, some people actually say that the romanticist movement came from the, from all the people who had tuberculosis and anyways, to, to get, to cut to the chase, I believe that cancer, like tuberculosis, is a consumptive disease in the sense that a lot of people get it and know that they'll die. And it leads them to open up and live even harder in so many beautiful and incredible ways. And I want to be a part of that. I want to build relationships with those kinds of people. Um, I watched a documentary with my family recently, and it was called a lion in the house. And it was about uh, five, six different kids uh, at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which is where I'm working right now, uh, who are dying of terminal cancer. And it was incredible to see the interactions that the doctors had with the kids and the, the ways that the doctors grew and the way that the kids grew and the way that the kids' families grew. But to know and see that their relationship with the kids extended further than just life. The doctors went to the kids' funerals. The doctors continue to stay in touch with their, their families. 
And I want that kind of interaction and involvement with the people that I serve and work with in medicine. It's a really great segment, listeners. As a business owner, sometimes when I hire people, I look at ability and motivation. And most people I interview have the ability, so then the tiebreaker becomes motivation. And I look at why Dasha wants to be an oncologist. And, it, you know, you didn't talk about the lifestyle. It's probably kind of a hard lifestyle in some ways, medical school and residency and all that's a long tunnel. But yeah. what a cool thing you want to do to be with people and see them up close and live even hard to see their life lived, lived even harder, to use your language, live even harder. And, and some people would not want to be in those tough situations, but you're wired to want to be there. And to be there emotionally, which doesn't show up on the MCAP score, um, but to be there also as their medical doctor to help. And you'll s- help some people survive cancer. And so that's just a, you know, thank you for um, your desire to do that. And you have my hope and prayer that that becomes a reality for you. And maybe you'll come on the podcast in a period sometime down the road as an oncologist talking about um, this chapter of your life. Hopefully. Thank you, Richard. Um, tell us about, your, you know, tell us about this disability, hearing disability and your brain surgery and what that taught you and what it is. Yeah, no. And I, I, I think about your book and it's listen, learn and love. And, you know, for, for a lot of it, it's quite literally starting with learning how to listen. Um, so when I was six years old, I was diagnosed with a sensory neuro hearing loss. And, um, I received bilateral hearings, hearing aids for it and grew up trying, you know, and had a lot of these experiences with, um, you know, trying to reconcile and understand my disability while working with the world. But I, I still have, uh, I still have these funny, you know, misunderstanding stories. I, I work at a, I think I told you that I work at a hospital in Cincinnati and we do a lot of research with mice. And I was coming home from the hospital one day and I had been shadowing my doctor. I was wearing nice pants and, uh, and a nice shirt as well. And I was walking home and this guy comes up to me and he like sees me and he says like, Hey, you're looking good today. I'm like, all right. Yeah, good. Thank you. And he's like, how are you? Good. Good. How are you? And then he asked me a weird question and he says, did you see anything yummy today? I was like, what kind of question is that? So like sarcastically, I responded, yeah, lots of mice. And he just went super quiet. He didn't say anything. I was like, that's kind of weird. And I was walking away. And all of a sudden, I realized he didn't ask me, did you see anything yummy today? He asked me, did you eat anything yummy today? So... Now there's some guy in Cincinnati who thinks, thinks there's you eat mice. some 22 year old who thinks a 22 year old who eats mice and all that nasty stuff. But this his, this hearing disability has affected me in so many different ways. Um, I uh, growing up, uh, I struggled to kind of understand and accept what this disability meant for me. And uh, um, you know when I was. Uh, but I, I've, I've come to better terms of it as well. And a lot of it happened through an experience with my brain surgery. Um, 
And so when I was eight years old, I started to have these massive migraines and they were really, really bad. And so my parents took me in to see a neurologist and the neurologist looks at me and says, kids have migraines, go home, drink lots of water, go get lots of rest, you know, figure it out. So we went home, drank lots of water, got lots of rest and the migraines persisted. And we went back to the neurologist a couple of weeks later. We we're like, hey, we drank, I drank water. I took lots of rest and they're still here. And he's like, go home and do it again. And we were getting a little sick and we were, uh, I was about to leave that day. And he noticed that I wore hearing aids. And he looks at me and he looks at my mom. He thinks, he says, let's get you an MRI. So I got an MRI and the MRI reveals this brain condition called Chiari malformation. We say that again. Yeah. It's uh, the, the whole thing. Or yeah. Just the brain condition. So our listeners get that. The brain condition. Uh, yeah. It's called a Chiari malformation. Um, and uh, I had to go in for massive decompression surgery. Um, and so about a week later I went into Stanford children's hospital and they operated on me and it seemed to be a success until 48 hours later i had a seizure and a hematoma and i had to go in for a second surgery and wow after that one i started to recover and it took me about a month to get back to my feet again i had to learn how to walk in many different senses again and uh, it was it was not a good experience but in retrospect i mean i'm preparing to be a doctor and i'm looking into this condition and one of the things that we see is that hearing aids in this condition have nothing to do with each other. And so it was a miracle that the doctor had seen my hearing aids and decided to get me an MRI without which I probably would have become paralyzed. And so it's not in spite of my hearing aids, but because of it that I'm living today. Just so I understand, this may help our listeners, your hearing condition, which has a name, and the brain condition has a name, are both genetic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But totally unrelated. So the neurologist, if that's the right term, sent you in for an MRI with a different hypothesis in his mind, maybe a brain tumor. I don't know what he was thinking, but the what he ended up seeing on the MRI is not why he sent you for the MRI. Yeah. And so that was sort of the miracle in the whole thing that this condition was found um, through the MRI that allowed this surgery. And then it sounds like a hematoma, if I understand, is bleeding in the brain. That's mm -hmm. not what's that then led to another surgery. Both of these are probably life-threatening surgeries that you survived and now you're fine. Is that correct? That's totally correct. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. And you just so our listeners understand, is the hearing loss for the rest of your life and the and is and the brain condition is it for the rest of your life or is it completely resolved so my hearing loss will be for the rest of my life luckily for me it's not a progressive hearing loss so that's the words that we use for when your hearing continuously gets worse um instead it's just bad hearing it's and just bad I mean, hearing yeah <laughs> so i i just went in a couple of days ago and i was getting new hearing aids and that was super exciting um and uh you know, my hearing is just the same as, as it was three years ago. So I'm, I'm happy everything's stable there. Uh, my hearing will not get worse until maybe I get old. Um, 
But um, and your brain condition is it? Can it come back or is it resolved? Isn't it completely I guess, resolved. acute versus chronic? So it's an acute resolved situation. Completely resolved. And so yeah, no, and I'm grateful for medicine and for the solutions it's provide me physically. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 been it's been incredible. And yeah, tell us more of the lessons you've learned now that you've you know, 22, you're probably 23 when this podcast comes out in July. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us just more now that you're, you know, 10 years or more, you know, 15 years removed from this, just the lessons you've learned and what it was like to be in that space. Yeah, no. And I've, I've pondered about this because uh, I believe that my disability, um, my hearing loss is something that God has given to me. You know, I believe it to be a part of my identity and a part of crafting who I am. Um, One of the things that I've learned over the last three years is how much I miss out in the world from not having good hearing. And the hearing aids don't completely fix that. I still miss out on a good amount of things. Um, But it's it's been paralleled with my journey to learn how to listen as well. I I think hearing and listening are two different things. but for for example, in my in my process in understanding what I hear and what I don't hear, I usually ask, "What you know?" or "What did you say?" or "I didn't catch that." Can you say again? So there's this recognition of uh, I heard something and I understand something, and I thought I heard something, but I didn't completely understand it. Um, and I think that goes really really close with the idea of learning how to listen that learning how to listen is a recognition that uh, there are some things that we understand and some things that we don't understand. And coming from a a perspective of vulnerability and asking others what their perspective is on that. And that to me is one of the the powers and many great lessons that I've learned from having my hearing aids that I can go forward and recognize what I know and recognize what I don't know, and seek to understand more what other people are saying. That's cool, Dashiell. That's really cool. Um, I want to keep you moving here. I don't. I want to get you talking about your prison talk. Do you want to talk anything more about hearing loss in this period of your life? No. I mean, I, I, I think it's. I think it's been, you know, an impactful experience that I've had, and it's it's changed the way I. I communicate and interact with others and, you know, I ask lots of questions. I say what all the time, but that's about it. You know, our mission president um, used to teach us about the importance of asking questions and listening. It really wasn't in Preach My Gospel. We didn't have Preach My Gospel in 1980, but I just think that's such an important principle that isn't taught too well or valued in our culture is the very thing you just talked about. And listening to those perhaps we wouldn't normally listen to to understand what they can teach us. Um, and not just people with the most privilege. Uh, talk about this talk. I read it, listeners, before um, Dashiell got to our home. And it, uh, it brought tears back to my eyes um, and just a feeling in my heart. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to turn it over to you to either give the talk or introduce the talk and then give the talk, however you want to handle it. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll jump right into it. Um, it's kind of the men in blue talk. Yeah. 
That's what I've called it. Um, over the years, I've heard my family talk about a special place. They talked about the work inside, but mostly they discussed the perspective I would gain. They told me about the feelings I would experience, pain, love, and the miraculous power of Christ's atonement. Before I left that day, I needed to make sure I had everything, though. I had to make sure I had my distinct clothes, a recommend that had required months of interviews, and of course, a happy attitude. That day before I left, my parents told me that they loved me and that they were proud of the decision that I had made. That beautiful spring morning, I presented my paperwork at the door and entered, entered the San Quentin State Prison. California's maximum security prison and the only one in California that houses inmates on death row. My background screening had taken several months and I had to dress modestly, avoiding the apparent gang colors of red or blue and of course, no prison neon orange or yellow. All of the inmates involved in the program were dressed in denim and they frequently referred to themselves as the men in blue. I was part of an interfaith restorative justice course where two dozens of us civilians would spend the day interacting with inmates. My role was to listen to their stories and encourage them to make restitution for their wrongs. The Men in Blue was a select group of men from the prison who were actively working to acknowledge their wrongs and find personal and spiritual transcendence in their repentance. The theme of the day was live to forgive. And that was a little funny to me because I had thought because many of these men had, were actually violent perpetrators, uh, many of whom had committed serious felonies, including murder, terrorism, and kidnapping. Why did these men need to forgive? At the beginning, I was instructed to pair up with an inmate and hear about his life experience. I remember talking to a man named Tommy, an older gentleman committed to life in prison, who was responsible for three deaths 30 years before. He told me his only daughter had reached out a year ago and wanted to visit him. He was so excited to see her and finally have her in his life. But on her way to San Quentin, a semi-truck hit her car and killed her. Instead of receiving an in-person visit from his daughter, Tommy received a call that he would neither see her that day or any other day in his life. In his despair, Tommy decided to call upon God for the first time in years. The Spirit prompted him to apply to this restorative justice program, where he has since found meaning and solace in his anguish. He even quipped, thank God for prisons, because without them, I never would have found him. To my surprise, the volunteers were subsequently encouraged to open up about their life's experiences. I remember sharing the insecurity of going into my senior year of high school, my own fears and petty cruelties. I had felt anxious to head off to college where I would have to start a new life and meet new people. Though Tommy and I had different life experiences, we were able to connect and help each other. I remember Tommy listening intently to me and asking me follow-up questions. He wasn't just listening to me. He was seeking to understand me and my circumstances. I had imagined my primary role would be to minister. I had no idea that I would be ministered to as well. 
That day, as I spoke with Tommy and the other men in blue, I discovered a uniting theme linking these men together. They, too, were victims. Grown men broke into tears as they reflected on their painful childhoods, and gradually, they acknowledged the terrible harms that had happened to them, and eventually, the harms they inflicted on others. It was hard to imagine anything positive coming from their, life, their extreme life circumstances. My eyes were open to just a sliver of the pain and suffering that exists in the world today. These were not the heartless men I imagine would be found in prison. Most were the products of a vicious cycle of poverty and violence that perpetuated itself throughout generations. I began to understand the need for the acknowledgement of their pain, and then hopefully the forgiveness that is the bedrock of the restorative justice program, and of course, the atonement of Jesus Christ. However, I was conflicted. My initial judgment turned to theological questioning as I started to consider the level of which their circumstances changed their life path. On one hand, these men had their agency. They ultimately had a choice and they made the wrong one. On the other hand, most, if not all of the men, were surrounded by poor influences and role models growing up. They could not control who they had as parents, nor could they change who led them to those poor decisions. The circumstances that surrounded their lives played a big role in their decision to break the law. Through my personal confliction, however, I began to recognize my own biases. I was inclined to believe from the beginning that these men in blue were evil. Before I could hear their stories and their experiences, I had already made a judgment in my own mind that their actions purely reflected their disposition and agency. I was wrong. As humans, we are primed to judge others for their actions. This flaw is so popular, it has even received a name in the field of social psychology, the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error suggests that humans tend to over-attribute the behaviors of others to their disposition, as opposed to the circumstances surrounding those behaviors. However, when it comes to judging and assessing ourselves, we over-attribute our behaviors to our circumstances as opposed to our disposition. We therefore place a double standard in our judgment of others, considering others responsible for their poor decisions while reflecting on our lives as merely products of the environment. This kind of mentality is toxic and can lead to spiritual blindness. In Matthew 7, we read, Judge not that ye be not judged, and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou clearly see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. As we see the wrong decisions of others as pure intent for evil, we cease to seek to understand them. Had I not been paired with Tommy and the other men in blue, I would continue to judge from my corner of contempt. I would forego the opportunity to both minister and be ministered to as an individual. While we do not know the exact extent that agency and circumstance determine our actions, it is not productive to attribute people's behavior solely to their own disposition. We must consider the circumstances in their lives and the events that led them to their decision. In his talk, Jesus, the perfect leader, 
Spencer W. Kimball presents the perspective that Christ had towards sinners. He states, Jesus saw sin as wrong, but also was able to see sin as bringing from deep and unmet needs on the part of the sinner. And I'll, I'll say that again, because I think that's one of the most profound quotes that I've ever heard. He said this, Jesus saw sin as wrong, but also was able to see sin as springing from deep and unmet needs on the part of the sinner. This suggests that though there is a level of agency in sin, circumstance and need also play a role in our actions. Moreover, President Kimball admonishes us that it behooves us to minister and fulfill the needs of others in order to eliminate those sins. Thus, personal righteousness is not only an end towards our salvation, but a means towards the salvation of others. Halfway through that day, I had a moment of doubt. Questions started to go through my head as I considered, what if one of the prisoners decided to attack me? Who would be there to save me if my life was put in danger? Panic overwhelmed my body as I thought about these things. I looked around in that vast prison chapel for correctional officers. And in that massive room of over 150 inmates, there could not have been more than three correctional officers. And then the answers to my question came as clear as day for me. It wasn't the correctional officers that would help me. It wasn't the volunteers. It was the men in blue. It was the men I ministered to and the men that ministered to me. It was the men who poured their soul out to me and opened my heart towards a new perspective. Despite their circumstance or disposition, I knew and trusted these men who were part of this program. I knew they would care for me if my life was placed in harm's way. And deep down in that dark and forlorn prison, the spirit filled my heart. At the end of that day, the men stood up to sing Amazing Grace. The chorus of the men in blue still echoes in my ears. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Brothers and sisters, we are the men and women in blue. Like those at San Quentin, we have had hardship and pain, and we have sinned. We may be spiritually lost, but through ministering in love, we may be found. Though we may be spiritually blind from judgment and attribution biases, through understanding, we can see. I'm grateful for my Savior, who understands both my disposition and my circumstance. I'm grateful for his amazing grace, which allows both reconciliation and repentance. And I pray as we go out to serve others, that we might understand the situation and disposition in the lives of those we love. And that's my talk. Dashiell, there's a bunch of people, including me, that have tears in my eyes multiple times through reading that talk and teaching us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a great talk. Thank you, Richard. 
it's a great experience. And I just have flooded with thoughts. I'm thinking of Brene Brown's quote, people are hard to hate, close up, move in. And that's a group of people I have no experience with. I've never done what you've done. And to see, perhaps as our heavenly parents see people, um, but to know that those men in blue would be the ones that would rescue you and save you. I love vulnerability. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability. Um, I'm 60. We weren't taught that principle. And your generation understands that better. And many of our guests are teaching me that as they vulnerably tell their stories, but it creates authentic connection. So I love somehow in your training, you were taught to be vulnerable about your story. And, and now that creates a place for Tommy to feel safe sharing his story with you. And I love Tommy having probably with no formal training, just gut instinct to be present for you and ask questions and to listen and be fully present. I appreciate that, Richard. It's, uh, it's, and it's an incredible experience. I mean, it was something that every single member of my family did. It was kind of like our rite of passage, you know, once you turned 18, you know, you went to the San Quentin prison. That was just a part of our family and what, what we did in our, you know, in our, in our traditions. And so that was, that was an incredible experience. And we've, we've grown together as a family for that. Julia and Tom, that's just got to be a payday for you. And I don't know where you got that idea, but to be able to help your kids be out of their bubble by seeing the world and have you have a son that can articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ and um, just to be there when all these men sing Amazing Grace. <laughs> and just the spirit that was there, San Quentin. And I just sometimes think in these spaces, we have our greatest spiritual experience where we honest, and vulnerable, and we talk about the atonement, and we talk about the need to improve, and we're honest. Um, I'm going to read a quote that I read sometimes on the podcast. It's from Henry Norman, a Catholic priest. Quote, over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness. Mostly we are so afraid of our weakness that we hide them at all costs and make them unavailable to others, but often to ourselves. In this way, we end up living a double life, even against our own desires. One life in which we present ourselves to the world, ourselves, and to God as the only person who's control in another life where we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lives can cause us a lot of suffering. I become increasing aware of the importance of overcoming the great chasm between these two lives. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community comes possible to the degree I am able to share my weaknesses with others. Often I become aware of the fact that in sharing my weaknesses, the realities with others, the real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinfulness start to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I could try to convince myself of others of my independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But once I am able to truly confess my profound dependence on others and on God, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. So when I read your talk, I thought of that quote and um, what Henry Nguyen's teaching us. And I love 
this quote from Thomas Merton, and I'm going to turn it back to you for more thoughts on your talk. Um, Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it's nobody's business. What we are asked to do is love, and that love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. And I just love that because to me, heaven isn't about me, Dashiell, just sort of isolating myself into perfection by all these checklists. It's I, it's reaching out and bringing others with me. And I recognize reaching out and bringing others with me like you did in San Quentin helps me. Not that I'm there just to help me, but I recognize that that experience helps me in a way that other experiences don't. So more thoughts on your prison talk. No, thank you for sharing that, though. I really appreciate it. And I think, I think all of us deal with a, a significant amount of imposter syndrome in That's our life at term. some point or another. And uh, it tends to be that we mostly feel those, that, that syndrome when we are young and we're learning how to, ident- uh, uh, to shape our identity and our personality and where we feel. Um, as you were sharing those, that quote, I, I couldn't help but think of a, of a scripture in the New Testament. It was James 1.8. And it's a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Wow. And uh, I think that's kind of, it captures the essence of, you know, the imposter syndrome that we face, that there is one side of us that puts out this performance and acts to be a way. And then there's another side of us that is vulnerable and honest and open about what we believe and how we feel and how we see the life around us. And I mean, I think I think that that scripture can even be extrapolated into a community. You could replace, you know, the word man with a double minded community is unstable in all of its ways. Um, You know, and I, I think that part of growing together as a community, as a Latter-day Saint community, but on a greater scale, you know, the community of our world is learning how to become unified, learning not how, learning how to not be unstable in our ways or not be double-minded, but to be upfront and honest. I love that. I love Matthew 7 that you shared and judge not that you be not judged. It's very simple, basic doctrine. In fact, the older I get, the more th- our doctrine actually becomes simpler, and it's relieving. Um, judge not, love, yeah. be kind to everybody, and these stories help me know how to do that. I love the quote you found from President Kimball, because um, I think he, sometimes I see sin as sort of the top of the iceberg, and often that's still sin, like you and I and President Kimball both say, but often when you get to the bottom of the iceberg, you develop more empathy and compassion and understanding. And that certainly happened for you in your visit to San Quentin and sort of reconciling, wait a second, this is still sin. This is still wrong. People were harmed that you develop compassion and empathy and understanding and recognize your own upbringing was very different than Tommy's upbringing. And then it helps me wonder sometimes where would I be if I were raised like Tommy? Um, what would my life be like if I were in Tommy's situation? Maybe Tommy's my age, I don't know. But then it makes me um, less judgmental, dashiell, and show kindness and empathy, and then just leave it all at the Savior's feet. And his perfect understanding is my job is to just do as you taught, to love and not judge. And I, I think towards this topic of a prison, I mean, a lot of these people have grown up in terrible families. They've grown up around drug abuse. And I mean, when your parents use drugs, 
your siblings use drugs, when all your friends use drugs. It normalizes the behavior in ways that you cannot control. And I'm not, I'm not resulting or, you know, kind of going to biological or sociological determinism to suggest that uh, people will only respond to their to their circumstances in their environment because at the end of the day people do have a decision but i i i can't help but feel that you know there is so much that is going against these people against against the men in blue against the the people in the prison and i can't help but empathize and really feel for what they go through and i i you know this is this is a topic that is endemic to humanity. I mean, I, I talked about the the whole idea of the, the fundamental attribution error that, you know, we literally, when we see other people and we see their actions, we tend to think like, wow, they're a terrible person. I don't know why they did that. Like they shouldn't have done that. We don't even think about their circumstances. But when we're judging ourselves, we think like, man, my life sucks. Like uh, I have a terrible teacher. My parents don't want to talk to me. I don't like my, like none of my friends want to spend time with me and it's kind of we put it all circumstantial as opposed to you know thinking about our own disposition and uh, you know I can't help but think that there is that double standard and the best way that we can move through that is one being vulnerable and talking about our li- our lives and the difficulties that we experience but also allowing other people to express those vulnerabilities and uh talk about that as well in open and honest ways I you know I one thing that you that that struck me from a conversation that you had a couple of of uh, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago was you know when someone had left the church or was dealing with difficulties with the church you know you asked them hey why are you leaving the church and there was no try to redirect them back towards the church. There was no, I'm going to solve your problems and you're going to figure it out. It was, uh, let me listen to you and hear what's going on in your life. And I, I think that's absolutely incredible. I think we can all develop a mindset because those are the conversations that are oftentimes the most, uh, you know, that have the most tension in it. And uh, the best way to, to, to help other people trust us is to really just listen to them without without expecting that they'll change. Um, thank you, Dashiell. Um, thank you for introducing attribution bias. Um, I haven't picked up on that before. Um, that's just a very important principle to understand is I'm, if I have a goal as a Latter-day Saint to lift the burdens of others and recognize that I need to look, look inward sometime and understand bias and how to get beyond that because that can keep, either add to the burdens of others or prevent me from help lifting the burdens of others. That's just a great talk. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Some people may go back and, um, what's the right word? Not prescribe. That's what we do for the pharmacy, (laughs) subscribe, or that's not it either. How do you transcribe a a script? Anyway, listeners, you know what I mean. Transpose, maybe. That's it. Thank you. Okay. My kids don't come to me for spelling or English <laughs> listeners. They come to their wonderful mom. Talk about your parents, uh, Julie and Tom, and just gr- talk about your LDS household and perhaps at times a non-traditional LDS household and just talk about the things they've done to prepare you for the world. No, yeah. No, I'm really, really grateful for, yeah. 
for that. Um, yeah, I would certainly describe it as a non-traditional Latter-day Saint household, kind of an intro to that and just a, a little view into our lives. We would, um, most family nights, uh, I think people might read their scriptures or sing a hymn and, uh, you know, talk about the Book of Mormon, and those are good things. My family nights, we would watch Tarantino or go to Pixar films or watch Korean dramas. We were all about film. We would always watch these movies. And uh, one of the coolest things is that we'd watch these movies and have these gospel-oriented conversations about them afterwards. Um, one of my favorite conversations with my family was talking about Fight Club. Uh, and the transcendence, the transcendence and suffering, um, that as we deal with difficulties, as we deal with trials, we experience a great amount of satisfaction. And that's certainly true within Latter-day Saint theology and, uh, in our own lives. And so, you know, that's just kind of a, a look into our lives. But on the days that we weren't watching movies, we would get together and we talk about difficult church topics. And we discuss polygamy. We talk about race and the priesthood. We talk about the CES letter. We'd go through it as a family and we'd talk about the different things there. Um, and it, it was enlightening to me to know that I didn't have to go to my high school and someone brings up the fact to me that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon out of a hat. And all of a sudden I'm surprised because I've never heard of that before. Or that... Uh, Joseph Smith had multiple wives, and I never knew that. And I argued with them and told them that they were wrong, that they was that was anti. And so uh, being informed and having these important yet difficult conversations with my family uh, was very, very beneficial towards my own faith. Um, growing up, my parents very much taught me to question authority <laughs> and even church authority at some times, which was paradoxical considering that my dad served as a bishop he served in the state presidency um but i remember the conversation with him when he told me that he didn't necessarily believe that the church is the true church but that it's the truest church for him and i thought about that and what the difference is between the two were and i think it had two different implications to it one that it was okay if I didn't 100% believe in the church, that I could have problems with certain things and still go through it. But two, that it could still be the best place for me, that it could be a place where I would find solace and I would find peace and I would learn how to grow and become uh, closer to God. And I've, uh, I've really, really appreciated that. Um, I am finally finishing up kind of a faith crisis for the last year. And um, that was that was really tough. It started right after my mission and it, it went for uh, the pandemic months of um, being at home and studying philosophy and having these deep conversations with my parents and then going to BYU where I didn't always uh, feel like I was um, in place with my testimony. Um, but I, it was a couple of weeks ago that I, I kind of came to the realization that I was, I think I was struggling more with the culture of the church than actually the church itself. Um, and I, I think it, it all kind of goes to the idea of church authority. Um, 
uh, Patrick Mason. I don't know if you've heard of him. He he has yes. this book. You've heard of him, yeah. yeah. Uh, he writes this book called Planted, and he talks about doubt and belonging. Um, and he he has a really funny quote, and I think it's totally true and relevant to our community. Um, but he says this. He says the Catholics teach that the Pope is infallible, but no one believes that. The Latter Day Saints teach that the prophet is fallible, but no one believes that. And I think that is totally true. I think, I mean, I, I, I can't really speak from the whole Catholic side of things. Um, but as far as, you know, our church goes, I think there's a great people who believe that there is kind of this mutually exclusive decision that they have to make. Either they have to decide that the, the prophet is perfect or that the prophet doesn't exist at all. And they struggle with these two different concepts and they choose one of the two extremes. And I think that that leads to a lot of problems in the church. And, you know, people, I, I, I think my realization was recognizing that uh, I, uh, there was some gray area in, the, in that. I didn't have to, you know, I could struggle with certain topics from the past, like race and the priesthood. And I could struggle with things about polygamy and uh, other things that I've talked about. And that's okay. That's totally okay. And I can still find a community in the church. It's a really good segment. I didn't know anything about that segment, listeners, before Dashiell just shared it. It's a great segment. Um, are you glad you went through what you'd call a faith crisis? Do you feel that's... For me, I call it almost falling forward. I don't look at it as a step backwards. When I went through that, I look at it as actually a step forwards, even though the connotation of faith crisis can be sort of a negative thing. Share with us how you feel about it now that it's happened. I am so grateful that it's happened. I am so grateful that I've been able to go through this experience and uh, find that there's room for me in the church, even in the gray area. I think a lot of faith crises happen because, you know, there's one side that's black and one side that's white. And we feel like we need to choose between one or the other. And we don't feel like there's any gray area or other direction to go. And for me, resolving my faith crisis was realizing that there was some gray area. There was some ambiguity at the end of the day. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that ambiguity. I'm grateful for the fact that there's some things that I don't know. Um, because I think, uh, in, uh, I think it's that, you know, in, in dealing with uncertainty deals a lot with learning how to be uncomfortable with uncertainty. And that's, that's, that's been incredible and monumental. And I come out of this faith crisis knowing that there could be a point in the future where things get tough for me again, where my faith is rattled. But at the very least, I, I mean, I loved kind of what my parents were talking about. You know, it's okay if I didn't 100% believe with everything that the church teaches, past or present, um, that I could still be a part of the church and still find a community here. And I've kind of taken that resolution that I'm never going to leave the church, um, even, you know, even when my faith is not going well. It's a great segment, Dashiell. And I just, I hope that, it's a credit to your parents to give you a set of principles to be able to navigate this because I think your ability to navigate this 
faith crisis is partly due to the principles your parents laid down and sort of creating um, nuance and a way of seeing things that gave you some tools to navigate this post-mission. It's a credit to you and who you are and your heart and your mind. You, um, But I hope listeners is, I think of the scripture, one heart and one mind in creating Zion. And that doesn't mean we all have uniform beliefs about our church history, how we feel about current leaders, how we feel about the future. We all just want to create Zion by blessing the lives of others and helping others into Christ. And let's don't make it a litmus test that everybody has the same feelings about our history or about the future, about um, things that we're uncomfortable with our leaders done, because then we just lose really good people like Dashiell. And if, as he opens up and is vulnerable, but if he's in a, in a situation where people would look different at him or Let's recognize the courage it takes to be vulnerable and be honest and go through this and say that, you know, this is my path forward. And um, an extra measure of support and love um, versus any sort of judgment or any sort of way we sometimes talk about people that um, are going through the difficult issues of our church and, and reconciling that. It's a pretty vulnerable time, and I think it can make all the difference for their future in the churches, how we respond to people open up. Any thoughts on that, Dashiell, you want to add to our listeners? No, I I, I absolutely agree, and I think, uh, I, I think one of the things that I've kind of realized with my faith and with my difficulties in faith that, you know— asking people what they're going through or asking people about their faith crises, you know, allows them to open up and they might be a little nervous or a little uncomfortable in sharing those things, but our support and loving them, I think does two things. I mean, first it, it shows us, it shows them that we love them, but it also shows us that it shows them that we are, okay with some of the things that they talk about. I think that when someone talks about problems and difficulties that they might have with church topics or not feeling close to God or uh, with a belief in the prophet, as we listen to them and love them, we show them that we're, you know, tolerate's probably not the right word, but that we love them and that we care for them and that there's always space in our community and I love that. You know, I, I hope that that will always extend to my interactions with members who are still in the church and uh, to members who are leaving the church and to members who have left the church. Um, I hope that everyone can find some kind of community at the end of the day. That's great. And to me, if we really own the gospel of Jesus Christ and the understanding of the plan of salvation and heavenly parents love, then we're able to do that. What you just said to me, that's not selling out the gospel. That's actually understanding the gospel and giving the grace to people um, and honoring the plan of salvation and the agency we have here. Um, I like what you said about the church. I, you know, I have listeners, this is the ch- true church for me. And our family is all members of the church. And I have invited people, just like Dashiell has on his mission, to join the church. And I've been pretty confident and comfortable that it is their path and the church has blessed their path. I've also been at peace that it's not everybody's plan to join the church. Obviously, 98% of the world population really doesn't have a fair chance right now to 
understand our doctrine. So I've been at peace just looking at the rest of humanity and saying God has a plan, and I hope that their religions, as they're part of religion, blesses their lives and gives them sort of joy and happiness that I feel in my faith. And I, um, yeah, I'm always interested in having a conversation, especially for people that are not settled in their religion or looking for something different. And um, it just gives me, that's just the way I process that. I've just been at peace with people choosing different paths and saying, I don't understand the full story here. So my job is to not judge and love and not sort of, you know, just do what you're doing. And that has helped me to feel, you know, when I walk around our neighborhood and I've lived here 20 years, I think when I was first here, Dashiell, I just saw everybody as a member, a non-member <laughs> and thought all those non-members were in need of rescue. And my job was to help them find happiness. And I feel different about them now. I just, I see them as Heavenly Father's children that are doing really wonderful things in their lives. And I just have this non-agenda love and friendship for them. And and perhaps some will open up to me because they feel that non-agenda love if they feel they something is missing in their life and perhaps our church could fulfill that. I think they're more likely to open up versus me just sort of having this agenda relationship where they kind of know my goal is to get them baptized. Yeah, that's just the way I process yeah. that, listeners. Yeah. Um, the fourth segment is I want to make sure we get to this. Is just like many listeners, we're all kind of in this process to become LGBTQ allies. It's not like a a class we all take and then we graduate and there's some certification that says, "Okay, you now are an LGBTQ ally." It's just a work in process that I continue to work on. Dashiell's working on and. I think a lot of people are kind of nervous about the space because they don't want to make any mistakes. They don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, so Dashiell's just going to share a little bit of his story. But I, uh, Dashiell's father, knowing that I was writing a book or not knowing I was writing a book, but just forward one of your emails to me um, while you're on your mission in 2019 in Oklahoma City. And I, if it's okay if I read that from Go the book. Go ahead. Um, this is in my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And I introduced this section with um, a quote from Sister Carol F. McConkie, who was the former first counselor in the Young Women's General Presidency. And she says, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not marginalize people. People marginalize people, and we need to fix that. And you kind of mentioned about the culture earlier, and I think the culture often, or the people, are what were a lot of the tension occurs. Um, but then I wrote this in the book. Another example of following Sister McConkie's counsel was in 2019 in the Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, as told by Elder Dashiell Minor, who was serving there, quote, during one leadership conference for a mission, the subject came out about how we could improve. Um, I raised my hand and talked about how we could be more sensitive to LGBTQ brothers and sisters by stopping great gay jokes. Quote, we are missionaries of the Church of, of Jesus Christ and His restored church. As our example as missionaries step the stage for the way the community sees us, shouldn't we be the archetype of love for all of His children? Another missionary commendated a gay brother that dealt with cruel jokes from other members of the church. The mission president, Darren Mansell, who's a friend, um, then reaffirmed the comments by saying he had some gay missionaries in the mission, many of whom were some of the best missionaries. Moreover, he mentioned that some 
gay LDS members can be examples to us, such as the recent BYU valedictorian Matt Easton. That day, there seemed to resolve to repent and be more sensitive to the silent majority who have gay family members and friends. So with that, I'll, I don't know if you want to talk more about that experience or just kind of talk about your your efforts to better understand this community. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I mean, I want to start it off by just kind of addressing the LGBT community and that I love you and I care for you and I'm always here to listen to you. And I will never fully understand the experience of being an LGBT member. And I want to do my best to understand what other people are going through in that process, because I'm not always perfect. Um, that, that, that anecdote from the mission right there, I've made gay jokes before. My family's made gay jokes before. Um, I think we've all said insensitive and demeaning things. And I think we can improve. I think we can do better. Um, I think I told you that I kind of grew up in this non-traditional Latter-day Saint back background and uh, growing up, my parents were very supportive of the LGBT community. And every Christmas, they would take the family to uh, the gay men's chorus. And we... Uh, just last weekend, they sent a photo of them at uh, Gay Pride. Um, one of the things that they told us, they sat us down once, and they said their biggest disappointment in the three kids were that none of us were LGBT. That's funny. And so I grew up in a very accepting and loving household, and they've taught and talked about how the importance of families showing that to their kids that they will love them no matter what, whether they are gay or not. Um, and so I've really appreciated that. Um, but I, I come from a position of vulnerability and I, I want to talk today. And uh, I mean, the way I talk, I, I mean, even in this podcast itself, I hope that if I ever say anything insensitive or demeaning and I can assure you that it is it would be completely ignorant but i'd hope that you'd reach out to me on facebook or instagram and tell me dashel you said this and that wasn't that wasn't kind or that wasn't acceptable and so the invitation is absolutely open because i'm learning how to improve and how to love others better um but i wanted to talk about some of the mistakes that i've made in becoming a better lgbt ally um because I don't think it is this, again, this black and white that, you know, one day you don't love them at all. And then the next day you are in the great, the, the gay straight alliance clubs and that you are marching at pride and that you will stand up every single time your friend makes a joke. Like that transition isn't, you know, isn't one or the other. We're all coming to this process of learning to love. Um, I think that, uh, I think there's this huge gap between theory and practice when it comes to loving our LGBT brothers and sisters. If I showed any member in the church the talk that Garrett Gong or Elder Uchtdorf had on learning to love LGBT members, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I don't think anyone would see that and be like, no, they're wrong. 
Like they, they shouldn't have said that they're speaking outside of their apostolic or prophetic authority in saying that we should love LGBT members. No, I think, I think everyone at the end of the day believes that we should love them. I think a lot of people differ in how they practice it and how they do that. I don't know. And, uh, I've, I've had some experience where, you know, even in a family that's taught me to be accepting and loving of other LGBT friends and um, that I haven't always been good there either. Um, I, in high school, I, I, I remember when one of my females friends came out as gay, I was, I was, I was really happy. And I was like, great, we can talk about girls now. This is awesome. Um, but and a lot of my interactions going from high school and college were interacting with female gay friends. And I remember this last semester interacting with a friend of mine who is gay. And uh, I, we never openly discussed it. We never talked about it. Um, and I'm sad to say that at first I was uncomfortable. And I was mad at myself for being uncomfortable. I was like, I've been taught to be loving. I've been taught to be caring. I've been taught to be unequivocal in my love for everyone around me. And yet here I am, I'm sitting, and I just don't know how to interact. And there was a ton of guilt there. And But as the semester progressed, as I got to know him better, I realized just because I had a gay friend didn't mean that they were going to hit on me. Just because I had a gay friend didn't mean if I didn't mean that if someone saw me with them that they'd think that I was gay. Um, that, and I I I learned to love and grow and become more understanding of what other people are going through. And I appreciate that experience and the humility that I received from it. It's a pretty honest experience. Your vulnerability is a credit to you and being honest about maybe some of your fears of getting close to this guy or hearing his story. Pretty honest. And I've had some of those same feelings and fears. Um, I certainly remember that, especially in, you know, my high school, college days back in the day. Talk more about just, do you talk more about that fear you had? Any other thoughts around it or what you can do, advice for people that may feel those same feelings and what they can do to be able to get in a better spot. That fear of interacting with yeah. LGBT members. When you uh, first knew there was an LGBTQ guy and a gay guy in your class or your circle at BYU. Well, I think it, I mean, a lot of it just goes back to this, this belief at the end of the day that we love them. We care for them. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think a lot of people um, in the church have not had many open and honest conversations with actively and openly gay members. Um, I think I think we've all had conversations with uh, LGBT individuals in our life. We just don't always know that. But I think if we ask them what their experience is, then they'll open up to us and we'll really begin to understand the pain and the suffering that they experience in in and outside of the church, but specifically inside of the church. Um, a close friend of mine recently uh, came out to me in the last couple of weeks 
And it's been very difficult to hear about what she's gone through, about uh, getting called to the honor code office on different occasions, on, um, you know, dealing with her family and her acceptance there and dealing with a community that continuously rejects you in so many different ways. And again, I mean, we, we, we teach and we believe that we should love them, but I think a lot of people really can't share that and don't, don't actually practice that theory. And so, um, and I'm, I, I, you know, again, I'm not, this is, this is something that I'm improving on as well. It's been fun to have conversations with her and I'll, I'll go ahead and say something that's kind of insensitive and she'll call me out on it. I'm like, dang, I shouldn't have said that. And like, we move on and we improve and we, we do better. When we know better, we do better. It's, it's really honest. And I've, you know, I'm sort of doing this podcast partly out of repentance for all the things I've said or not said and not knowing how to navigate this space. And um, it comes back to a theme that the longer I'm in the space, the more simple it becomes. Um, I get a lot of messages, DMs regarding, you know, I don't, where the line in the sand is, I don't want to love support to the point that I'm disappointing my heavenly parents. And listeners, I just think we create a false dichotomy. If you look at the doctrine that Christ taught, and to me, those are equal co-commandments to love the Lord with all our heart and love our fellow men as ourselves. And I think one of the best ways we love our heavenly parents is to love everybody. I know as a parent, that's what makes me the happiest is my kids get along, especially when there's differences and they still get along. And I just think that's how, partly how we honor our parents. And I've always felt like, I, in fact, I put this on a Facebook post that it's not like we have a hundred units of love. And if I give 80 to heavenly parents, I only have 20 left to give to other people. I just believe we have a hundred and we can give a hundred to our heavenly parents and a hundred to others. And it just, it's, you know, we just love the Lord with all of our heart and love our fellow men and ourselves. And to me, that just is the great, that's the doctrine. It's simple. And I think sometimes we complicate it. We create lines in the sand and we worry, we advocate. And to me, I just love and support and let people self-determine the right path for them. I, You listeners know that I always invite people to follow church teachings. Um, all the blessings in my life come from living the doctrine of our church. But I just invite you know, if people, I let them self-determine their path, particularly LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, and point them to personal revelation in the relationship with Heavenly Fathers, they make their path forward and then just support them the best way I can. It doesn't mean I get ahead of them, Dashiell, and sort of say, this is what I, and I know you wouldn't do this, this is what I think you ought to do, or here's another story, you ought to do this. It just, you know, let them make their way forward. And I think one of the things that you're very good at, you did this in San Quentin, is just sit and hear their story and have sort of the skills to just ask follow. It's like Tommy. We all need to be Tommy um, in this space and just sit with people and ask questions and be fully present. It's not a complicated formula, but it can be deeply healing to have someone hear your story. And you're, you wouldn't want to say you're perfect to that, but I think you're doing a good job because people feel you're a safe person and are opening up to you. More thoughts on any of that? No, I, I agree. And I mean, it goes back to, you know, my my roots of having hearing disabilities and recognizing that I 
I don't see the full picture here. I will never fully understand what it is like to be a member in LGBT. Uh, but I can try to understand and I can ask questions. I think a lot of, um, uh, I think a lot of uh, dealing with, uh, um, I think a lot of learning how to love and care for other people is willing to be wrong, willing to be called out every once in a while. Um, and having that community is important. I, I remember at BYU this last semester in the honors program, they did a, a meeting on racism at BYU, which was kind of terrifying. It was very scary to look at some of the racist practices of BYU in the past. And I won't go into them there, but I, I remember towards the end, there was a Q&A and one guy got up and asked a question and it was, it was a difficult question. It needed to be asked, but it was a difficult question. Um, but he went forward and he, he asked the question and then like five seconds through the question is like, but if I'm wrong, people tell me. And then like five seconds later, it's like, but if I'm wrong, people tell me. And five seconds later, but if I'm wrong, people tell me. And uh, someone got up, someone, you know, made a comment on the Zoom and said, just say your question. Just say it. And if you're wrong, we'll correct you. We'll give you advice on how you can improve on that. And I thought that was... That's an incredible thing to have in a community that we can have people who are willing to give correction, but people who are also willing to receive it as well. Um, and that was that was an important lesson to me that, uh, you know, a lot of us end up just being quiet. We don't open up about our experiences and we don't talk about the things that we believe in. And because we don't talk about the things that we believe in, then there's this this issue where you know, there's a whole part of our, our lives and uh, that we can never really discourse and share and talk about and maybe even debate with others. Um, you know, I think, I think every topic is open game. I, I think of humility and I think of the ability to say I'm wrong and I may continue to be wrong is a Christ-like attribute. That reminds me of a quote I put in the book from Elder Uchtdorf um, in a worldwide training back in 2012. And then I'm going to turn it over to you for any final comments. Um, brothers and sisters, as good as our previous experience may be, if we stop asking questions, stop thinking, stop pondering, we can thwart the revelations of the Spirit. Remember, it was the, it was the questions young Joseph asked that opened the door for the restoration of all things. We can block the growth and knowledge our Heavenly Father intends for us. How often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew? And listeners, you know I've repented and continue to do of the massive iron gate of what I thought I knew about LGBTQ people that was really only came from the voices of straight people defining this group for me. And you, you have to do what Dashiell's doing. You have to go to San Quentin and listen. People are hard to hate, close up, move in. Christ, his whole life did that over and over and over again. Everybody that society said shouldn't be with, he was with. And he was on days of the week, he shouldn't be there. And I just think he taught us how to love in a practical example without compromising the commandments 
Um, but, and, and in fact, he taught us how to live the commandments by the way he treated people. Um, so, um, Dashiell, you know, are you a millennial or a Gen Z? I forget where the cutoff is. I have no idea. Well, <laughs> um, I think I'm like right the at the cusp line. of one or the other. <laughs> I I need to I I need to look into that. Well, our, my kids were talking about that the other day. That's why I'm more into that. But listeners, I hope you just recognize that you know our guest is somebody that just turned 23. And if you and Dash will be embarrassed that I'm saying this, but if you want to have hope for the future of the world, the church, he's going to be a medical doctor. You know, I just as I listen to millennials and Gen Zs, I just am filled with hope for the future, their worldview, their ability to tackle difficult issues. Um, it just gives me hope. You're bright, you're articulate, you have a great heart, you understand the gospel, you have Christ-like attributes that weren't as valued. Um, when I was your age, like vulnerability and knowing that I'm wrong sometimes, that to me are men attributes <laughs> um, that we need to normalize in a and in our culture in a better way. So um, you have a great life ahead of you, and your credit to your parents, and and you will bless a lot of lives. And thank you for being on the podcast. But I'll just turn it back to you, Dashiell, and. I don't know if we spelled Dashiell's name, but tell us how to spell your name. If people try to track you down on Facebook or Instagram, you could give your Facebook or Instagram if you want to, and just any closing comments. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram. My name is Dashiell Miner. That first name spelled D-A-S-H-I-E-L-L. Um, I'm named after a San Francisco author. There you uh, go. So from where I'm from originally. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for having me, Richard. And I, what, what you're doing on this, this podcast is absolutely incredible. I, I think you are doing so much for the Latter-day Saint community and, and talking about these things openly and honestly. And, um, I'm really grateful for what you do, but I, I, you know, want to end with my testimony that I know the church is true, that, um, I know that Joseph Smith restored the original church of Jesus Christ. And I, I know that Jesus Christ is my savior and that he atoned and died for our sins as well. And, uh, I am so grateful for the example that he leaves for me and for helping me become a better person every single day. And without Jesus Christ and without this church and without the gospel, I would be a fundamentally a different person. Um, and I, yeah, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Hey, and I back that up in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for sharing your testimony. Um, many guests do that at times. It's very helpful. And um, we, I kind of want to keep talking listeners, but I think it's time to let you get off the treadmill or quit driving the car or get back to what you're doing. And we really appreciate all you do. The way you can support this podcast is just go rate the podcast, leave a review. You can't donate. Um, that helps us. So thank you listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.